Warrior Woman, welcome back to the Warrior School podcast. This is episode 180. I have a guest for you today. It is the one and only Dr. Stacy Sims. This is Stacy's second time on the Warrior School podcast. She came on to help me celebrate episode 100. So 80 episodes later, I asked her if she wanted to come back on and have a hot drink with me and talk about her research, what she's interested in. Uh, I wanted to talk about the menstrual cycle sinking craze that is taken over Instagram and that is telling you not to train in certain phases of your cycle. I wanted to talk about body composition changes that happen during perimenopause and some dietary supplements that we could use as women to improve performance. It was so funny. I finished this conversation, this podcast episode with Stacy, and got off and went over to the gram and I had a DM from Ruby, who is my dear friend and business coach. And Ruby said that she was training in the park and a woman in her early 50s came up to her and started to ask her about what she was doing, about her training, and then was sharing a little bit of her story and sharing her frustration around going through perimenopause and how hard it is and that she felt like it was too late for her that she was having a really hard time, a roller coaster ride of a time during perimenopause and she really wanted to train and she wished that she was stronger or she had more muscle. And this is something that, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about and we get to kick it off today with Stacey's episode, but I'm going to do some future episodes on this idea that You know, if we're in our 40s, mid 40s, late 40s, even in our 50s, that it's too late for us to actually uh, get stronger or build muscle. And Stacey talks about this power window, this perimenopause power window, and that in fact, the five years before we even enter into menopause, those five years are so critical. What we know from earlier research and Dr. Stacey Sims earlier research is that resistance training, so strength training and this high intensity training, not in the way you think about it, not as in F45 or orange theory, but uh, plyometric sprint training is critical in this menopausal transition. This five years before we enter menopause is so important if we want to reduce the negative body composition and health changes that happen in the years leading up to menopause. So there's some actually some really cool new research that's been published uh, lately and Dr. Stacey Sims and I talk about that research when it comes to body composition changes and metabolic changes in perimenopause and how we can mitigate them, what we need to do with our training uh, and our nutrition. We talk about so much in this podcast episode. It's so good. 
we kick off by talking about her current research projects, which I always love hearing about. I love hearing about what she's up to. So we talk about her research. Uh, We talk about this problem with menstrual cycle sinking and uh, what's happening now with this macro trend that has, you know, really flourished in the Instagram world and the problem it's really causing for women when it comes to their training. We also talk about low energy availability and its effects on our hormones and our training. We talk about perimenopause and body composition changes, training during perimenopause, creatine supplementation, dietary supplementation for women and performance. We talk about Stacey's training, the conferences that she's going to speak at this year. Uh, I ask her how she talks to her daughter about her body and her hormones. And then a really cool announcement that Stacey makes at the end, which I'll keep a surprise. So you've got to listen all the way to the end of the episode. This was such a really fun conversation. I love talking to Stacey. She's real. She's hardcore. She's full of knowledge. Enjoy this conversation on the perimenopause power window with Dr. Stacey Sims. Welcome to the Warrior School podcast, the podcast for women who train. I believe following a plan that works with your body and has a timeline of years is the future of women's training. I also believe women can train hard. We just need to learn how to do it in a respectful way. So Warrior, this is your go-to show for practical information on training, nutrition, hormones, and performance. Myself and tons of experts will help you create a training strategy that works with your body and gets results. I am your teacher, Amy Bow, coach, dietitian, and the creator of Warrior School. Okay, Warrior Woman, let's do this. Dr. Stacey Sims, welcome back to the Warrior School podcast. Oh, thanks. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah. Since we last did our podcast episode, you are now like a podcast queen. I know. I feel like that's how I stay in touch with the world. I just meet all sorts of people and do podcasts so I can talk to people who are all over the world. <laughs> yeah. So many. You've done so many over the last like year. I know. I don't want to do the I don't want to do the math on how many I've done, but no, it's fun. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, well, first I just want to say thank you. Like thank you for coming on and spending time with us today because I know it takes a lot of energy and it takes time out of your busy life. So I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. What are you drinking? Protein coffee. Nice. I wish I could have a coffee with you, but it's 4.09 PM here and that wouldn't go Yeah, that well. wouldn't work. No, not unless you want to be up till 4 AM. Yeah. So I have a tea. <laughs> Okay, we can change tears with tea. We can. (laughs) So I'd love just to start, what's going on in your world? What are you up to? Oh, gosh. Um, 
depends on what angle you want to take. You want to take the research the angle, the angles. industry angle, all the different angles. Okay. Um, let's see. From the research angle, we've just gotten two grants funded. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, one is actually looking at the incidence of low energy availability and anemia in recreational all the way through elites. So trying to see what the incidence is in all the different populations of, of female athletes. And then the other is kind of a tag onto that. But last year, about this time, I was back in California and I met up with my mentor, Marcia Stepanek Stanford, and we got to talking about assays, as you do when you're a scientist, yes, and <laughs> proteomics. And um, we started going, well, I wish there was a non-invasive way of being able to look at um, health incidences in women. And then we started talking about menstrual blood. And lo and behold, there was this paper that it came out talking about proteomics of menstrual blood. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is such a cool way of looking at all these things in women's blood without actually having to be invasive. So we came back, I came back and met with a colleague and we put together a grant to look at um, the incidence or look at markers for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, PCOS, endometriosis, um, hormone imbalances um, and menstrual blood versus like systemic blood. Um, again, in all the different range of those athletes. So it's a tag on to the big one. So we just got those funded. So I'm very excited because then if we can actually validate it, then we have an at-home test because of all the discrepancies and disparities of healthcare and the costs and all that kind of stuff. So people can be at home in the comfort of their own home without the tabooness of menstrual cycle. They can test. And then if something comes up, they have valid tests to go back to their physician to get help on all these things that otherwise don't get diagnosed in our healthcare system because women don't present the same as men when they have cardiovascular disease or diabetes. We know the incidence of PCOS is underdiagnosed. Endometriosis is undiagnosed. So I'm very excited. So that's the research side. <laughs> And how is that, how are they going to play out? Like, where are you, you just got the grant. And so what's like the next stage for you? Um, so we are already doing the LE or the anemia and low energy availability. So we have all the participants for that. So this next grant just came in a few days ago and it gets, the funding starts in July. So then we'll go to all of our participants that are in the existing study and say, hey, would you mind coming into the lab? on day two of your period. And so we can do these validation tests. Um, so we'll see what happens. It'll be good. Yeah. Can we just talk a little bit about low energy availability? Like what were you, what have you seen in your work? Like why, why do you want to study this? Why is it important? Uh, Cause it tends to be the, I don't want to say silent killer because that's like heart attack stuff, but um, it's a silent underminder of so many women who are trying to be healthy and trying to you know, gain lean mass and take control of their blood markers and reduce cardiovascular disease, of course, look better, be healthier across the board. But then we have all these diet trends that come in or, you know, it's fasted training, it's fasted zone two training, it's intermittent fasting, it's keto, it's this, it's that. And people have forgotten what it means to be fueled for the work at hand. So we're seeing this massive upsurge of low energy availability. So then that feeds forward to anemia, menstrual cycle dysfunction, bone stress reactions, fatigue, 
increased um, body fat, increased inflammation. So all of these things that can be wrapped up and diagnosed as low energy availability, but it's not in the physician's hand. It's not in the woman's hand. So no one really knows about it because they think it's like Olympic athlete thing. We also know it's in men as well, but we got to nail it down and say, these are the risk factors. This is the incidence. These are the early warning signs and really be able to scope it out because it's such an issue and people don't really realize how big an issue it is. Yeah, it's, you know, it's quite well studied in, you know, endurance sports. Uh, But someone asked me a question a little while ago around like CrossFit and high intensity training. And anyway, massive I found, in there too. Yes, I found a couple of actual papers um, that were on low energy availability in CrossFit athletes, specifically yeah. female CrossFit athletes, and I think they found it was like sixty percent of yep. like recreational female CrossFit athletes were in low energy availability. Right. And it's, it's endemic. I mean, I look at it and I can see it like it was endemic in my Olympic lifters because they were trying to meet weight classes. Right. And so they're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not training that hard. So I, I can do this training fasted. And then with CrossFit, it's like you have the super early morning conditioning sessions and then you might have another workout and another workout and it's such high intensity and you're always in this breakdown state. And then there's the miscommunication of how you're fueling for that, that carbs are bad, or I have to eat clean. So they get too full before they put in the actual calories. So it's, it's, yeah, it's not just endurance, it's cross the board. Yeah. And are you seeing it in women that train like recreationally at a gym and they might strength train three to four times a week? Yes. Absolutely. And it's a really high incidence in women who are in their mid to late 40s and starting to hit perimenopause because the body composition changes that are happening that are like, wait a second, I don't want this extra body fat. I must be eating too much and not training harder. So then they try to upskill their training and back down on the food or they try to get into the fasted, you know, the fasted windows and they end up doing all of their work, both life work and exercise work in that fasted state. Even if they have enough calories, their body is still being perceived or perceiving it as being not enough nutrition for the stress at hand. So, yeah, it's interesting. It is. Yeah. What um, could you just talk a little bit uh, about like what are some signs, especially for those women that are in like their 40s, mid 40s, late 40s, they're starting to go through perimenopause, they're having these body composition changes. So their first thought is okay, like I need to do more or train harder and eat less. Mm-hmm. How, do, how does a woman know that she might be landing in like this place of not eating enough? Or could you just actually start by talking about what is low energy availability? And then how do we kind of know that we might be playing yeah, in it, that area? Yeah. So low energy availability is when you don't have enough nutrition after your basic daily body function. So if you're to lie on the couch all day watching Netflix, your body needs a certain amount of energy just to exist. Then we call that your resting metabolic rate. As soon as you get up and start walking around the house, you need more calories. As soon as you exit the house and start doing other things in your life, you need more calories. And when you add training onto that, you need more calories. Well, calories being energy for the body to function, to have a perturbation in its temperature and its metabolic rate and come back down. When we get into low energy availability, it's not having enough food to support daily function as well as training. So 
Unfortunately, there's that mentality of calories in, calories out, instead of thinking about quality of calories and timing of food. Because the body isn't like this straight algorithm where you're like, okay, I'll feed it a certain amount of calories and it'll be fine. If you're not feeding it energy when it's under high stress, then it goes into a survival mode. And we see this in low energy. We see after four days of not fueling properly for your training, your brain perceives as being low energy. And we start to see a downturn in our thyroid function. We start to see a decrease in our resting metabolic rate. And then after about a month or so, you really start to see perturbations in menstrual cycle function. When we're looking at perimenopause, because those are signs and symptoms of perimenopause, it's really hard to pull it out and say, am I in low energy or not? So the best way I can tell women to really kind of nail it on the head to stay out of low energy is to fuel for what they are doing. So even if it's a strength training session and you're like, I'm not really burning that many calories, it's not about calories. It's about providing your body with the building blocks it needs to get through the workout and to recover from it to build and adapt. So we want to have around 15 grams of protein before that strength training session and 30 to 40 grams after that. And that can be your next meal. It doesn't have to be something extra, but it's making sure you're bookending your training with some nutrition. Because then the hypothalamus is very important for reading energy density and keeping our metabolism set and our appetite set. Because, oh yeah, okay, there's nutrition coming in for the stress that I'm under. So it's all right. I can rebuild. I can respond to the stress. I can adapt. But if you don't have that fuel afterwards, in particular, your body stays in a breakdown state. And the first thing that goes is lean mass. So if we're looking at trying to change body composition, the best thing that we can do, regardless of our age, is fuel for what we're doing and make sure we're getting that adequate protein intake because we want to preserve our lean mass. We don't want to lose it. It's too hard to build back. So hard to build back. It is. It's gold. You got to hold on to it. I know. And the older you get, the harder it is to get it. No, I, I really like that. I like this focus on, you know, cause I'm not a massive fan of calories in calories out. <laughs> no, it's neither never, one of us are. Yeah. It's never vibed with me. And so I really like how you explain that you've got a fuel for the stress. It's like the stress isn't bad. It's if we're not fueled well for it, then it becomes bad. And I guess it gets such a bad rap. And I'm sure you see this so much in your work that stress is bad. Uh, And I saw recently you just did a new blog post on like cutting through the confusion around cycle syncing. Yes. Yes. Can can we just talk a little bit about that? Because like five, six years ago, you know, it wasn't spoken about much. And when I started to really look into your work and look into it and talk a little bit about it, I thought this is going to become like a macro trend that is just going to get blown up. And then there's going to be so much confusion around it. And it's also going to end with the message of like, be careful, don't train here, don't do this when women already struggle so much to like. Right. (laughs) I know. And it doesn't help when you have half the sports science world yelling, there's no evidence. And then the other half of us going, there are nuances within it. So when the paper came out a couple of weeks ago that was looking specifically at spring training, the 
systematic review, um, I knew they were going to say there's no evidence because the people that are publishing this are pure academics and most of them haven't worked with athletes. So they're looking at poor science to begin with because we know sports science hasn't been designed for women to look specifically at women or differences in women. Or if they do, they go post hoc tests, which isn't sensitive enough to really find differences and effects. So when you put it all together and do a review of a review, then of course you're gonna say, there's no ro really robust evidence, let's shut it all down. But um, I wrote the blog for people to understand that we've gotta look outside of sports science literature. Because one, we know, like I just said, it's underpowered. You have an N of 10, really hard to do a randomized controlled trial within sports science. And when you're putting all these reviews together, because it's poor methodology, you're going to get this whole conglomerate of effects that have been washed out. But when we look at things, like I had to pull a whole literature list together for a uh, journalist who's doing a, an article in New York Times that's coming out. And she's like, where's this about stress in the follicular phase? Okay, well, we look at the psychology, we look at immunology, and we pull all this together and say, look, in the follicular phase, women can handle stress better. Why? Because their immune system is better. Their neurotransmitters are better. Their responses to cortisol are better. So we also look at um, like the psychological aspect, the motivation is better. The reactive time is better. When we look at fueling and metabolism, right? We see that there's an uptick in our resting metabolic rate in the high hormone phase, but also an increase in our protein needs because our body is breaking things down to build the endometrial tissue. So we start looking outside of sports science and we start looking at fertility, we start looking at endocrinology, we look at psychology, we look at public health. There's a plethora of research that comes together to show that the body is resilient to stress when the hormones are relatively low becomes less and less resilient to stress the closer we get to the, our next bleed phase. And me, as I've been working for decades with athletes and being an athlete and putting all of this into practice and seeing the results and seeing the empowerment that women have when they take control of their own cycle and they're not going, oh, I feel like shit, what happened? It's, oh, I feel like shit because it's day 23. I always feel like shit. So I'm not going to push myself when they learn their own cycles and then they're able to push when they can and then they know that they can back off because their body's not quite as responsive to the adaptive stress of exercise, it works beautifully. We see women that are able to progress faster, they're less injured, they get less upper respiratory tract infections. When they're traveling, they're more robust as well because their immune system isn't as compromised from being on the edge of overtraining. And there's so many things that get wrapped up into the menstrual cycle phase-based kind of stuff. But yes, as you said, it got completely blown out of portion. And so now it's like people are kind of blaming me for pushing it out there. I'm like, no, I'm just saying like, look, we have this advantage where when the hormones are low, we look at all of these things that say, hey, yeah, I can take on stress. And as the hormones start to come up, there are these inherent changes within the female physiology which are a biological aspect that might impede our adaptation to training because we have greater inflammation, we have greater oxidation, we have an increased core temperature, we have changes in the way we utilize fuel. So yeah, it's very, it was very frustrating when all of a sudden everyone's yelling, there's no evidence, there's no evidence because it confuses women even more. Yeah. And, and that's why that blog was written. 
Yeah, and it was so, it was a really powerful blog and really well written. Uh, so, but, you know, also what is evidence? You said you've been an athlete for so long. You've been aware of your physiology for a long time. You've worked with hundreds of athletes, hundreds of females. And so we're forgetting the other side of the conversation, which is the qualitative evidence. And that is really powerful based on, just your own experience and you working with so many women over the, you know, like decades, like decades. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That, you know, and I think it just takes a while and this is probably why you're doing the work for, for the science and I'm like putting my little quotes quotes (laughs) up uh, for it to catch up to really like our qualitative exp- applied experience um, as yeah. coaches, as women who have trained for decades. Um, and that's what's the frustrating thing is that they they find that there's no evidence in the actual science. But like you said, the numbers are so small. There's so many variables um, and they're only looking at one specific area. They're not looking at all the others that you just mentioned. And so the conclusion is no evidence, but you're like, well, but I have 10 years of Of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just too lazy to publish it because my goal isn't to be a tenure track professor with all these publications. My goal is to do the work and get it out there and help women. If I wanted to sit in my little Mount Monganui like room and just head down, bum up, doing stats and writing papers, then I would get that information out there in the scientific world to have more quote evidence. But I'm too old and frustrated to do that. I just want to help people. Yeah. And you're going to speak in May, isn't it? Is it at the, it's the, it's the first Emirates sports medicine conference. Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, the year of conferences. So I am going to Dubai in May to talk there which I find really interesting but if they're going to open up to female athletes then I'm going to support it so there's one section there you're there I'm going in there (laughs) I'm going to try not to get arrested for having bare shoulders but yeah I'm going in there um yeah um so there's a whole section I think there's like six of us talking on different topics so that'll be good and then in June I'm going to the female athlete health conference um that Catherine Ackerman is putting on at Harvard giving a talk there and then I turn and burn from there and go down to Florida to talk at the International Society of Sport and Nutrition Conference about female athlete nutrition considerations. So yeah, it's, it's like, ooh, everywhere. Are they all different talks on different topics? Yep. The one in Dubai is about technology and how we're looking at algorithms and even data sets for biomechanics and stuff that are all based on male data that aren't necessarily appropriate for women and interpretation from wearables. So pushing that out there. I'm not sure if that's really the appropriate thing for people who are just looking at female athletes, but I wanted to get it out there before they start really digging in and and coaching female athletes. Then the Female Athlete Conference at Harvard, I'm talking about um, peri and postmenopause nutritional considerations and body comp changes. And then in Florida at the Sport Nutrition Conference, talking about our new position stand that's coming out that has all the guidelines for females. So last year, or even this year is the year of podcasts, but this year will be the year of conferences. Yeah. <laughs> for you. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I'm super interested just to hear a little bit about uh, the the considerations for women perimenopause and menopause and body composition changes. Can yeah. we just can we just talk a little bit about that? Of course we can. So we there was this really really cool study that was published um, maybe about a year ago that was looking specifically at body composition changes. It was from Abby Smith Ryan's lab out of UNC. And they demonstrated that there's a significant change in about the five years before the onset of menopause. Not only body composition changes, but body's ability to change between carbohydrate fat utilization because mm-hmm. of, you know, I guess they call it metabolic inflexibility. When we look at it a little bit closer and we look at like gut microbiome research and we look at uh, a lot of the endocrinology research, we see that when we're going through perimenopause, especially in that late perimenopause, we're having a drop in our hormones and a change in the ratios. We're also having a significant change in our gut microbiome. Because when we look at how our sex hormones actually work in our body, they're released, but then they go to the liver to be metabolized and bound to sex hormone binding globulin, which we see a lot in our blood tests, right? And then they're excreted in the bile into the small intestine or into the intestine. And there we have bacteria that unconjugates it or breaks it off the sex hormone binding hormone and shoots it back out into circulation. So now they're active. And when we're looking at what happens with the change in the ratios between estrogen, progesterone, and perimenopause, and we start to have a decrease in those hormones, we see that there's a decrease in the diversity of our gut bugs because we don't have as many gut bugs to change those hormones because they're not needed. And unfortunately, what happens is we end up with an overgrowth of the bacteria colonies that make us crave carbohydrate, simple carbohydrates, and are also associated with a more obese stature than a lean stature. So we start to see these gut changes in correspondence with increase in our insulin insensitivity, so insulin resistance, higher blood glucose, more um, abdominal adiposity, so that deep the cereal fat, and a loss of our lean mass. When we look at women who are exercising, it still can happen if they keep doing that moderate intensity work because it's not a very strong stress, so it doesn't invoke the changes that we normally associate exercise with gut microbiome diversity. So when we're looking at how do we help mitigate some of these changes, then we look at increasing the amount of fibrous fruit and veg, so that we can feed the deep gut and keep a diverse amount of bacteria growing. And we have to look at a a stronger stimulus more often to get kind of the adaptations that we really want, both from a gut microbiome, but also body composition. So that is leading up to menopause. So people always think about menopause and after menopause as being the issue, but it's actually the five years before where we start doing our changes to our nutrition and training, we can impact and not have a significant, as significant change in body comp as we would if we didn't do those changes. Yeah. So with the training, what in those five years, as we're going through this, what have you seen to be the most supportive for? Significant polarization of the training. So um, the big rock really is resistance training but not like the, you know, hypertrophy type work where we're looking to break tissue down because we need to have a very strong central nervous system drive 
So when we lose estrogen, we are losing a lot of the impetus to build lean mass and produce power and strength because estrogen is tightly tied to the stem cell and the basal cell of the lean of the muscle to actually build it. It's tied to the actin myosin um, filament action. So it's very much tied to myosin and how strong myosin binds to actin, which gives us that strong muscle contraction. And it's also tied to uh, how much acetylcholine is being held um, in the gap junction, which is where the nerve fires and crosses with acetylcholine to recruit a lot of muscle fibers for a strong contraction. So when we lose estrogen, we lose those three impetus. So if we're looking at heavy resistance training, power type training, then we're getting a central nervous system response. That's like, hey, wait a second. I need to have more acetylcholine. I need to be able to um, recruit more fibers. I need to have a very strong actin myosin bind for a strong contraction. And I also need more muscle fibers themselves to be able to lift this load. So this is where we look at progressive overload with heavy resistance training to be able to build and maintain our lean mass, as well as keep building on strength and power that we ordinarily would lose. We look at plyometrics as well. So plyometrics is an explosiveness that allows us to maintain power and proprioception. And it also helps with our um, blood glucose control because if we have that high intensity work, then it is like, hey, okay, let's have some changes within the muscle that allows the muscle to have more ATP and more available glucose for this fast work without using insulin. So this is what I mean by the polarized training. We're either doing plyometrics, we're doing sprint interval training, or we're doing true high intensity interval training, which is the one to three minutes of 80% or more, not a orange theory or a F45 type moderate intensity class. And then on the other days where you're like, I really like killed myself and thrashed myself, I just want to go outside. Then it's that really slow kind of, I guess people are now saying zone two training, but it's not for hours at a time, yeah. like a half an hour, 45 minutes where you're just out enjoying movement. So that's what the polarized training is. And this is where we're looking at that top end hard work. The adaptive stress that is a very strong stimulus that causes the adaptive changes hormones used to support, and then the recovery aspect. But we want to stay away from that middle, that moderate intensity stuff, which drives cortisol up, increases body fat, increases sympathetic drive, all the things that people are talking about in peri and postmenopause that cause a lot of issues. Yeah, what uh, what's the prescription that you see that works really well? between this, this hard strength training, lifting heavy weights, and then this, you know, bottom end recovery. Yeah. yeah. So we say you try to get um, minimum two heavy resistance training sessions a week and two high intensity sessions. a week. And then if you want to move all the other times, and that's when you're like really slow or functional or, you know, doing mobility, yoga, walking with your friends, going for a really light jog, easy swim, whatever it is you want. If you're training for something specific, that's a different story. If you're training for like a 100K gravel race, that's a different story. But for just baseline fitness, this is what we're looking for. It's dropping the volume and increasing the quality intensity. And we look at it as a two-week on and one-week off. So two weeks of focused work where you're doing a lot of the heavy, hard stuff, and then one week of really cruisy, just moving, and you know, keeping your body re- really resilient for full recovery and adaptation. Yeah. 
And that's what you've seen work quite well for women who are in this, yeah, in this age range going through. Exactly. And of course, if we're looking at women whose physicians will default and be like, hey, you're going through perimenopause, here's some hormone replacement therapy. I want people to understand that if you go on menopause hormone therapy, it doesn't do anything for body composition. It'll slow the rate of change, but it doesn't stop it. If you are doing the work that's involved with resistance training, then yes, you will build muscle, but it's not necessarily because you're on hormone replacement therapy. It's because you're doing the work. So yeah, I, I want people to understand that because there's also a lot of misconception about what hormone therapy is. It's a therapy and we see it and it's very useful for people who have very bad symptomology. They might have vaginal atrophy and dryness, hot flush, night sweats, incredible anxiety and mood changes, brain fog, sore joints, all of these things that can add up to decreased quality of life, then yes, you can consider using it, but it is not the mainstay for body composition that a lot of people think that they need because they go to their physician like, can't sleep, I'm putting on all this weight, I don't know what to do. And they're like, yeah, okay, menopause hormone therapy, which is new because it used to not be that way because there was the fear around it. But now there's an unprecedented unprecedented rise in the use and, and prescription for it. So it's very interesting. Mm, I didn't know that. And that is interesting. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so for, for you, it's like, we got to come back to the food. We've got to create a, a great food strategy and we've got to train. We've got to manage yep. our stress. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All these things. Yeah. And that's yeah. like, for our whole life, we got to do that. <laughs> but I particularly, know. yes, when yeah. you know the two biggest complaints that I hear in my work when we start to get into this perimenopause um, phase is body composition changes and then sleep disturbances. Yep. Like those two big things are huge. Yep. And um, this is where, like, I always go, okay, let's look at adaptogens. They're very powerful for sleep. L-theanine fantastic. It's an amino acid that's directly involved in the GABA system and neurotransmitters that improve sleep, sleep architecture. Rhodiola also really, really helps decrease sympathetic drive and improve sleep quality. Um, So those are like the two things that I talk about for sleep, as well as good sleep hygiene. And people start doing that and they're like, wow, I feel amazing. So it's just really looking at what are some of the other things that we can add that make these changes not as hard because I don't want everyone to be like, oh my gosh, it's so hard. I'm already stressed out. I'm already in this point where I'm so sympathetically driven. How do I look at mindfulness? How do I improve my sleep? What do you mean I need to change my nutrition and training? It's like, let's do small steps at a time. Let's first work on sleep. Let's get to sleep down and let's look at good sleep hygiene. Let's use some L-theanine and rhodiola, not melatonin. Let's make sure we're working with our circadian rhythm. Once we get that that's one of the big rocks that we really need to work on. And then things are better because then we have better mood control. We have better metabolism and everything just can be a little bit easier or a bit more stress resilient when we get that good sleep. Yeah. You have a micro learning on adaptogens, don't you? Yeah. 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 I do. And it goes through all of the things that you can use and why. Yeah. Do you have a micro learning on sleep? Not yet. It's coming though. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> yeah. And we also have a, a free downloadable on the website on adaptogens, the, the adaptogen cheat sheet. So it's a quick reference of 
these are my signs and symptoms. This is what I should use. Is it contraindicated? Oh, okay, great. I can try it. Yeah. I know you do have a micro learning on creatine. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Let's touch on that hot little topic. Uh, actually, I know. I think I've heard you talk about, I think it was you that said, has who said, mm-hmm. uh, pronounced, pro- not pronounced, um, has who stated that creatine is essential for women? Yeah. 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 Um, because it's involved in so many fast energetics, right? So we're looking at brain health, we're looking at heart health, gut health muscle health, all of these things. And women have 70% of the stores of men and we start to lose more as we get older. So when we're looking at public burden diseases and we're looking at cardiovascular, we're looking at gut issues, IBS, autoimmune triggers, that kind of stuff. They're finding that when you have a little bit more creatine on board, it attenuates the risk. So they're like, hey, wait, women need to really beef up on the creatine. Um, So it, it was interesting that that got pulled up and picked up. Um, Because there's been, you know, it's one of the most researched supplements out there. And there's a huge amount of research that supports its efficacy and safety. But everyone still thinks about it as bodybuilding, where if I start taking all this creatine, I'm going to put on all this water water weight and I'm going to get all bulky and bloated. It's like, no, because when you're looking at bodybuilding, the idea is to load five grams four times a day with one gram of carbohydrate per pound of body weight. So you're taking in a lot, or sorry, per kilo of body weight. You're taking in a lot of carbohydrate. And when you're storing that carbohydrate, for every um, gram of glycogen storage, you get three grams of water. So if you're doing creatine with carbohydrate to get it into the muscle, of course you're gonna put in more body water. But if you're just taking the three to five grams of creatine and not loading it with carbohydrate, you're increasing the saturation point in your entire body and you're able to actually use it. Your brain is like, sweet, great. So you end up with better mood, better focus. A lot of my athletes who have had IBS or gut issues, especially endurance, that dissipates because now they have a better gut mucosa um, because it doesn't erode as quickly. So yeah, it's it's great. I love it. Yeah. So prescription wise, three to five grams a day. Yep. Do you have um, a preference on uh, brands that you use? Uh, so of course I'll say Momentus because I've partnered with them. And the reason I have is because we have the same ethos. Like I've been in sport nutrition, I've created a few brands and I know how that system works. Like if you're not really pedantic about what goes in things and you care about the quality and general manufacturing um, processes, then you're gonna end up with a product that's probably contaminated with fillers, flow agents, and other things. Talking with Jeff Beyer, who is the founder of Momentus, he comes from an NFL background and Mm. he got taken care of completely by everyone who's surrounding him. And he's like, well, why can't the general person have the same safety features that I have when someone's already vetted all this stuff? He's like, I'm gonna create a company that does that. So Momentus is very, very pedantic on where they source things, how it's made, if it's clean, does it work? And so I was like, hey, wait, we're speaking the same language. So yeah. And they also use Creapure. So Creapure is an instantized um, creatine. So it doesn't cause, because a lot of people be like, oh, I got really bad stomach upset or my face breaks out because they're using a less than pure creatine. So Creapure is, is a instantized um, creatine monohydrate that's in all the top brands. 
So if you please use Momentus, but if you don't use Momentus, then you can look for Crea Pure in other brands to make sure you're getting a high quality. I love that. Uh, would uh, Can we just talk a little bit about other dietary supplements for females and performance? Like what's the, creatine is one of the most well-researched. I'm sure mm-hmm. caffeine comes pretty close to it mm-hmm. as well, but yep. what's the research like in women, in females? Is Again, is <laughs> all of this dietary supplement research on males as well? On men, yes. Uh, so there was an audit on all the like top ergogenic supplements out there. And they're like, there's really nothing for women except um, we look at nitrates. So beet juice is really effective in late perimenopause, early postmenopause, because it helps with vasodilation and constriction because the nitric oxide cycle is tightly tied to endothelial cells that usually respond to estrogen. So that's a really effective one that, It's not necessarily for performance, but helps with like hot flashes and temperature control. Um, When we're looking at pure performance things, beta alanine works in women, uh, creatine, caffeine, and in older women, the nitrates. Everything else, nothing. Protein powder is an exception. That actually does work for men and women. But all the other ones, nope, there's no... They haven't really, I think three to 4% of all supplement studies have included. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I read a stat as well between 2014 and 2026% of the sport and exercise research was done on females or something. It was very, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now you see my beef with the evidence. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, Okay. So. There is a bit of data with creatine, uh, beta aniline, and caffeine. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And nitrates. And Beet nitrates. Juice. Yeah. Okay. And um, I'll bring Abby back into the play, Abby Smith Ryan. She's done a tremendous amount of research on creatine across the lifespan, is, has a really fantastic paper out that looks at the efficacy of creatine, even through pregnancy. Um, so there's lots of really good stuff about creatine use across the lifespan, not just for performance, but for health. So I'll shout out to her because she's, she's great. Yeah. We've got to shout out to the people that do the really cool work. And, I know. Yeah. Produce, know. produce the cool information. Yes, uh, exactly. I want to know what are you doing in your training right now? What's going on on that side of things? Well, I can't train for anything specific because I'm traveling so much this year. So um, I'm really, I changed gyms because I broke up with CrossFit after how many years. And I'm um, at a new gym and we're just, it's really focused on strength development and being able to lift properly. So I'm going back to lifting technique, lifting heavy loads and really getting strong because uh, I have a little bit of a discrepancy. So I'm loving that. And then swimming, of course, because I'm by the ocean. And then when I can, I get out on my bike. And then when I know I have to travel, I'll do some running so that I have something to do besides just being a hotel fitness center. Um, yeah, so that's it. My my dream, though, is to ride up Haleakala in Maui in July. Whether that happens or not is a different story. We'll see. Okay, what is I that? Because I have a birthday. I have a birthday in July. You do? Yeah. Yeah. What is it? 
Um, it's a decade one. I'll just leave it at that. The best kind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what yeah. is that journey up that mountain like? What What are we talking uh, about? Elevation, distance. Yeah. So it is something close to 10,000 feet of elevation over 50K. And it goes from sea level up to the observatory. And it's one of the bucket list rides as a roadie that you have to do. Or you could just get a ride up to the top and take the e-bike and ride down. <laughs> it's going to be fun too. But, I guess it depends on the intention of the experience. Yeah. 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 But I'm a hill climber by racing background and I love riding hills. So that would be on the bucket list to do. And then you're in Hawaii. So who wouldn't want to be there? Yeah. With the sunshine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you travel... What do you do to support yourself? Because that it's a lot. Traveling can be, you know, a lot on the body's systems, and mm -hmm. then you're you're speaking and doing and yeah. Talk to all me the about stuff. Your, yeah, talk to me about your strategy. Yeah, well, I go into it knowing that it, I just have to take care of myself because I, you know, when I'm at home, I have work, I have my daughter, husband, house, friends, all those other kinds of things. So I get into the mindset. Okay, it's just you and the work. Um, so my big strategy for avoiding jet lag is using L-theanine and rhodiola, like I talked about for sleep. So I'll take it a half an hour before I have to be asleep in whatever time zone I am. in. So then I get really good sleep. Then when I get up, I make sure I get up early enough to be able to get outside and either go for a run or a walk to kind of get my bearing of the new place and to get that early morning daylight hours. Um, and then I'll do whatever work I need to do. And then in the evening, I'll go to a gym and I'll do either a true gym session if I have the energy. Otherwise, I just move and do a lot of mobility. So I'm bookending the day with stuff that helps me either focus or increase parasympathetic drive to then be able to sleep. So wherever I am, that's that's how I operate. And I try not to look at my home time versus the time zone. Yeah. Don't look yeah. at the don't look at the other time. It's no. <laughs> ignore the the home yeah. time zone. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it was hard because I was in Amsterdam earlier. I was in Amsterdam maybe three weeks ago, and it's exactly a twelve hour difference. So I would call at night at like eight o'clock at night, and it's my daughter's breakfast time. So I'm like, yeah, okay. I'm last night, and you're this morning. <laughs> so that was hard because you get reminded. When you're talking at home, but I try not to. I'm like, I gotta go to bed. I gotta go to school. <laughs> uh, how old is she now? She's ten. She's ten. Uh, yes. Out of interest, uh, you know, I'm really fascinated with uh, teaching our daughters and having conversations with our daughters about their body and their physiology. And what mm -hmm. what is that? Yeah, if you don't mind me asking, the yeah the conversations that you have with her around your work and her body and her physiology. And yeah, could you, could you just talk yeah, a little yeah. bit about that? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, she's very aware of, you know, like women are not small men and women have periods and all that kind of stuff. Uh, she has friends who are worried. They're all talking about getting their periods and they're all worried. So she'll come and ask me questions about it. Um, very open about it. Like if she has any kind of question, happy to answer. There's no judgment, anything like that. Just, I find it is really good. Um, and I'm very happy that we've established that. There's some good books out there. Um, 
that are like girl stuff from eight to 13 and then girl stuff 13 onwards that we kind of go through. And so she understands that the immediate mood changes isn't because it's something that has done like she's done, but it's hormones and um, the changes her body is undergoing is, is hormones. And so we are like completely prepared with like period undie kit and all those kinds of things and body changes, but it still doesn't stop the whole, you know, my body's changing. I'm gangly. I'm, I'm bigger than my friends or my friend is bigger than me. And so all of those sociocultural things start to kind of weave their way in. So I always bring it back to strength, strength and movement. And I uh, took her with me to one of the strength development classes last week. And there are only three of us in there. So another woman, myself, and then my daughter. And she's like, I want to do this, mommy. And so the gym owner coach was really nice and like, taught her to do like deadlifts and jumping and that kind of stuff. She's like, that was so fun. And now my muscles hurt. Now I understand. I want to be strong. So I was like, sweet. Cause it's about the functional movement. So we try to make it as, you know, your body's changing, but let's get functional movement in there. Let's see how you move. Let's make you strong. And so it's just continuously reinforcing that kind of conversation and not about the negative things that keep coming up from friends and stuff. So yeah, work in progress. It's yeah, hard. It is. Yeah, it's hard. I think, like you said, from the the social side of it, the social cultural side of it. But mm-hmm. I think what helped me the most was, you know, I started gymnastics when I was three, and then oh, I had done gymnastics and danced and been in a gym since I was fourteen. And so the body and the connection to my body was always so strong, and it was always very mm-hmm. like focused on the functionality of it. Um, yeah. And I think that can be so powerful for young girls of like, okay, we've got to like, we're going to connect to the body through the movement, through the training, learn what it feels like to like be connected to it and trust it and feel strong in it. And I think yeah. that can armor us against <laughs> some of the-, the other stuff. Right. Yeah. We've had these conversations because a lot of our friends are in gymnastics and in dance, but she has two parents have super long femurs and a short so so she by default isn't biomechanically adept for doing lots of gymnastic movements but she's really good at high jump she's good at long jump she's really good at soccer and those kinds of things so just enforcing and saying hey it's not because you can't do it it's just that your body type is different and if we look at the olympics you look at everyone who's in gymnastics they all have the same body shape they're all compact and longer torsos because that's the way gravity works. And if we look at people who are rowers or on the track, they have longer limbs. So pointing out those kinds of differences at an early age, then it really sets in, oh, okay, my body is designed to be able to do this. It's not designed to do that. And that's okay. I understand. Yeah, that's powerful. Like coming back to the biomechanics of a body Mm -hmm. structure and then how that allows us to do certain things a little bit easier than people that have different biomechanics with different structures. Very powerful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else that we we want to talk about? Anything else you want to share that is going on in your life, in your world? Uh, We have the second edition of Roar coming out. Because yeah. science evolves, and that book, I remember writing it when Jara was very tiny, and now she's not so tiny. So we pitched to be able to update it, and it is going through the process of publication and stuff. Now it should be out uh, hopefully June, 
So that has a whole plethora of new updated material. And I'm very excited about that. Yeah. That's really, yeah, that is really cool. Yeah. Have yeah. you been, is, that's what you've been doing a lot with your time as well, like writing, rewriting, gathering. Oh yeah. So um, we re revamped all of Aurora. I've written a massive position stand. Um, so that took a big chunk. Those are the big two big chunks of time. Um, and then we're content creation this year too. So we have divided up our courses. So we'll have a women are not men, women are not small men for professionals. That's all like really deeper in science and mechanisms. And then we have women are not small men light. That is more for general person who's interested in sex differences and what they should be doing as a woman, but not quite a deep dive into the science, but more case studies and implementation. Um, we're developing a youth course that talks about the functionality and functional movement and how to design that. Uh, and then we have the menopause one, of course, and then um, more micro learnings. So it's big, lots of in front of the computer writing stuff. Big content creation, big conference year, big birthday year. Yeah. Big year. And then I can stop. <laughs> Christmas time, that's it. No more. I'll well, retire. You, you normally kidding. take off a nice chunk of time, don't you, over the summer at Christmas time? Yeah, because um, we're in the Southern Hemisphere and everything shuts down from about the 20th of December all the way through to about the third week of January. All of New Zealand is on holiday. So it's really hard to be working when everyone else is not and your kids on summer holiday. So we're like, okay, well, we'll just shut down for a few weeks too. That's but I don't really shut down. It's oh. good, but I don't really shut down. <laughs> I just do stuff on my own timeline. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you love what you do and you're so passionate about it, like you can't not not think about it. Like you, right. you yeah, I'm the same. Yeah. I love what yeah. I do. And when you yeah. love your work and stuff, it's It's, it's hard fun. not to think about it, right? Yeah. yeah. What's the next thing? How am I going to get that information out? Who else can we educate? Yeah. Yes. I want to thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been super fun to see you and chat again. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Looking forward to just seeing everything that you create this oh. year. Yeah. Thanks. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait till it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The process okay. is good too. Yeah. The process is the, the, I think it's the coolest part. It's where you get to create and innovate and. And learn more. Yeah. Learn more and make it better. And yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. It's yeah. Cool. Okay. Dr. Stacey Sims. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks again. Warrior Woman. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't. Please give the podcast some love by subscribing now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and share it with another warrior woman. Also, if you want to go crazy, I'd love if you wrote a review for the Warrior School podcast. And also share and tag me with your biggest takeaways for the episode on the gram. Okay, warrior woman, have a great week in training. Bye for now.